Welcome back to Temporary Fandoms. As our name suggests, we're about becoming fans of a band for a limited period, and behaving like those completists who must hear every record. Usually for our guests, we're looking for a mixture of genuine fans of the artists, and if possible, somebody who has barely heard them at all. But for today's episode, we have three guests who, if you were organising the official 2020 Yola Tango Symposium, you couldn't hope for a better panel. One of them is the linguist and journalist Ben Zimmer, who you may have met before if you listened to part one of our Bowie Marathon. The other two? Well, you'll have to wait a little bit longer to find out who we've got. Anyway, that's the band we'll be listening to for the next two episodes. Yo La Tengo, Hoboken's finest bossa nova shoegaze act or something. As always, we'll be guiding you through their complete discography and then arguing the toss about the best bits. You can find us in all the usual podcast places, but if you want to find the Spotify version, which also includes the tunes, you can find us on Beat Rehab at beat.rehab slash tempfans. I won't keep you longer. We've got a lot of records to listen to. Join us for the occasionally soothing sounds of Yola Tango. Hello, welcome to Temporary Fandoms. My name's Ewan. And I'm Nick. He remembered, I thought he was going to forget. And we're glad you came back. Um, you sat through three David Bowie episodes. Um, if you haven't, go back and listen to them. Obviously, you can also find old ones covering the Pogues, Bottle Surfers, ESG, etc. Um, we've got a special double for you again, um, covering what could I guess could only be described, uh, described as um, indie rock gods, I would say. 16 albums uh, probably gives you that title. Um, welcoming back to the pod, who you last heard um, talking about Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders of Mar- from Mars, um, from- Ben Zimmer. Hey, Ben, how are you? Hello, I'm doing just fine, thanks. And who are you going to be taking us through today? Yes, we're going to be talking about Yola Tango, uh, Indie Rock Gods, that sounds about right, a band that has been part of the Indie Rock firmament since the 1980s, and we're going to talk about them in two separate installments. We're going to start in the first episode talking about their albums from the 80s and 90s, and then we'll move on in the second one for the aughts and the tens, teens, whatever you want to call that decade. <laughs> awesome. Um, also joining us, we've got two guests. Um, it's not often I can say we've literally got the man who wrote the book on a band, <laughs> but we've got the man who wrote the book on the band, Jesse Jarno, um, writer of Big Day Coming, Yola Tango and the Rise of Indie Rock, uh, DJ on WFMU, um, played in bands with various members. Oh, everybody else seems to have the book (laughs) in their hands. I have one. I've got mine mine is autographed. Well, mine's got a description. It says, happy birthday with love from (laughs) mum. That's an inscription. Um, Jesse, how are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me. Uh, um, Looking forward to this. You are welcome. Uh, And... Why did you write a book on Yola Tango? <laughs> Why not? Because um, I because I couldn't I couldn't find another one to read. Um, <laughs> basically, I became a, a a pretty hardcore Yola Tango fan, and they just kept getting more and more interesting the more I learned about them. And that sort of one thing led to another. And so, rough guess, how many times would you say you have seen Yola Tango? <laughs> I uh. I I lost count. I was trying to figure out how many complete Hanukkah runs I've seen and then I was going to multiply that by eight and then add 
Some I re- I I don't know in the in the hundreds wow. more um, <laughs> maybe probably well, I would have guessed at least four digits for you. <laughs> uh, also joining us, I was, I was um, only bloomer. <laughs> also joining us, um, can I describe you as a super fan, mega fan, big fan, um, singer songwriter, comic book artist Jeffrey Lewis? Um, hey Jeffrey, how are you? Hey, doing good. Hi from New York City. Um, it's uh, three fourteen p.m. where I am. So everybody's in their various time zones. Thanks for thanks for joining us on this. Um, I know that you've been a, you've been a big fan of Yola Tango over the years. Um, you've been interviewed. You've met, you've cited them at uh, various times. Um, we'll get to more details and anecdotes and stories later. But I'm now going to ask you how many times you think you've seen Yola Tango. <laughs> well, a lot less than Jesse. I, I've um, <laughs> I've seen them pretty consistently. Over a long time, I first saw them in 1996. Me too. That was the first year I saw them. Yeah, good, good year for Yellow yeah. Tango gigs. <laughs> um, their their greatest period in my mind. Um, and I guess I've seen that. You know, I, just when you said we're going to ask everybody how many times we've seen them, I started frantically like trying to jot down and try to get a count. But um, that would be a project for me to complete some other time. But I, I've, you know, I'm gonna guess somewhere in the 20s you know 20 20 something times um because uh but very varied circumstances uh i've never seen a full hanukkah run like jesse has (laughs) usually the hanukkah shows maybe i'll see one or maybe two or um i'm I'm just gonna jump in as as a listener um, who may not be familiar with what the Hanukkah, Hanukkah run is. Um, before we go through the albums, can either Jesse or Jeffrey tell the list? I obviously know. I mean, yeah, obviously, of course. But just in case somebody doesn't. Sure. Well, that, you know, in starting in 2001 at Maxwell's, which was their, their home club in Hoboken, really, you know, where, where Georgia and Ira met as I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about. Uh, but starting in 2001, they played all eight nights of Hanukkah um, with different guests every night, uh, different stand-up comedians every night, uh, songs by the, uh, the great Jewish songwriters, such as, you know, Bob Dylan and, and Lou Reed and, and Mark Bolin and, you know, on and on and on. Um, and it's just turned into this amazing family party, basically. You know, they don't do it every single year probably not happening this year uh and it's moved to the move to the bowery ballroom after maxwell's closed but it's just this in- incredible thing in the last bunch of years they've done all eight nights without doing any song repeats um and the there i could talk about hanukkah for hours and that would probably uh derail us really it swiftly probably, these things will probably come back again in the round table um, regular listeners will know that after this point uh, you're going to hear a voice talking you through the albums, giving you some insight, some detail, um, some personal information, not you know personal information, but personal information related to the band. Um, if you're listening on Spotify, there's the playlist so you can ch- listen to selected songs. Um, after the next thing, you're going to hear Ben talking you through the first selection of Yola Tengo albums. Um, ben, where do we start and where do we finish for part one? So for part one, uh, for the 1980s and 1990s, uh, we've got eight albums starting with Ride the Tiger, their debut from 1986. And that's followed by New Wave Hot Dogs, President Yola Tango, Fake Book, May I Sing With Me, Painful, 
Electropura. And we finish off uh, this installment with I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One from 1997. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay, listener, you know what to do. Um, relax, take the time. Um, the playlist will only have a couple of songs, but we encourage everybody to pause the podcast, go and explore. Um, we are not something that you should be diving into on a 20-minute bus journey. Spend the weekend with us if you want. And everybody will be back after this. First, let's set the scene by traveling back in time 40 years to the summer of 1980. On 4th of July weekend, two young denizens of the New York City music scene, 23-year-old Ira Kaplan and 20-year-old Georgia Hubley, first met. They didn't meet at a Manhattan hotspot like CBGB, but rather across the Hudson River at a new club in Hoboken, New Jersey, called Maxwell's. The band playing that night was The Feelies, fresh off the release of their album, Crazy Rhythms. The Feelies would become something of a house band at Maxwell's, typifying what some called the Hoboken Sound, a jangly American alternative to the British new wave of the day. At the time, Ira was writing music reviews for The New York Rocker and The Soho Weekly News, two publications that championed the indie bands you would hear at Maxwell's. Ira had recently moved to Hoboken and was rooming with Chris Stamey of the jangle rock pioneers The DBs, North Carolina transplants who would also become staples at Maxwell's. Georgia moved to Hoboken too, and soon the two of them were inseparable. They wanted to play music together, Ira on guitar and Georgia on drums, and they got their first chance backing up The DBs at a New York rocker office party in 1982. After a few attempts at bands, they formed Yola Tango. The name was based on an old joke about their favorite baseball team, the New York Mets. And they played their first gig in December 1984 at Maxwell's, of course. They were joined by the first of more than a dozen revolving door bassists before James McNew finally became their permanent third member. Their first single followed a year later and their first album a year after that and soon enough, Ira and Georgia got married. And they're still chugging away more than three decades later, exploring many styles while still achieving a brilliant level of consistency, as most of their indie rock brethren have burnt out or faded away. Yola Tango's first album, Ride the Tiger, came out in 1986 a year after their very first recording, the 1985 single, The River of Water. The single came out on Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley's own label, Egon Records, and the first incarnation of the band featured Dave Rick on bass and Dave Schramm on guitars. For The River of Water, they were also joined in the Hoboken studio space Water Music by Mike Chang on sax and Chris Nelson on trombone, who contribute a rather kooky horn break. Adding that horn break to their very first single showed that from the beginning, they were willing to experiment with their sound, though it would be a long time before horns returned to the band's repertoire. And the flip side was the first of the band's many covers, A House Is Not A Motel, originally by Love from their 1967 album, Forever Changes. 
The noisy ending of that one was the first glimmer of Ira's explorations in guitar feedback. Both sides of the single were included as bonus tracks on the CD reissue of Ride the Tiger. On their first album, Soon to be Married, Ira Kaplan and Georgia Hubley, here accompanied by guitarist Dave Schramm and a few different bassists, cement their sound in the tuneful tradition of jangle rockers like the DBs, coming through straight away in the ringing opening riff of The Cone of Silence. They also draw inspiration from their Hoboken pals, the Feelies. The Empty Pool comes from Feelies' offshoot Young Woo. And it's all strongly rooted in 1960s touchstones like The Kinks, Big Sky from The Kinks is covered here, and The Velvet Underground. Songs like The Pain of Pain are quite velvety. Ira might not be too confident about his vocals just yet, often keeping them low in the mix, with Dave Schramm taking over lead vocal duties on a few tracks. Georgia at this point keeps to the drums, with a pounding style reminiscent of the Velvet Underground's Mo Tucker and occasional backing harmonies. But there are many signs of things to come, especially with propulsive fuzzed up numbers like the evil that men do. A quick note to listeners of our Spotify playlist, currently Ride the Tiger is only available on Spotify in North America. The same is true for the next two albums, which were reissued together on a single CD. Spotify listeners in Europe and elsewhere will have to content themselves with songs from these albums that appear on Yola Tango's 2005 compilation, Prisoners of Love. Guitarist Dave Schramm left after the first album, though he would revisit the lineup later on from time to time. But on New Wave Hot Dogs from 1987, it's addition by subtraction, as Ira steps up his guitar game. Clunk is an energetic opener, showing a big boost of confidence. From there, they settle into what would become a familiar pattern, up-tempo guitar-heavy rockers, alternating with sweeter, quieter numbers. Highlights include Lewis, with its shout-out to every hit song America ever had, the Velvet Underground obscurity, It's All Right the Way That You Live, the noise fest, Let's Compromise, originally by the band Information, friends from Ira's New York rocker days, and Did I Tell You, their first straightforward romantic ballad, which would get an even sweeter treatment a few years later on Fakebook. Yola Tango said goodbye to the 80s with President Yola Tango, an album transitioning away from their early jangle rock sound. The guitar feedback loop droning through the killer opener, Barnaby Hardly Working, heralds a new style of harnessing noise into a groove. They return to The Evil That Men Do, a song from Ride the Tiger, with two reworkings, one surfy, Craig's version, and one feedbacky, Pablo's version. The second of these is a 10-minute skronk fest recorded live at CBGB, the first of many such extended noise jams to come. But the quiet songs are just as vital. Alida sweetly melds Ira and George's voices as Georgia begins to emerge as the band's secret weapon. And if you can make it through Pablo's version of The Evil That Men Do, 
you're rewarded with a touching rendition of Bob Dylan's I Threw It All Away. Things were starting to get pretty noisy with President Yola Tango, but that's all stripped away for the folk-inflected Fake Book, an immensely listenable collection of 11 covers and five originals. Actually, two of the originals are remakes, Barnaby Hardly Working from President Yola Tango and Did I Tell You from New Wave Hot Dogs, and both show off how adept they are at reinterpreting their own back catalog. The covers come from a typically eclectic roster of artists. Peter Stamfel, Cat Stevens, The Scene Is Now, The Flamin' Groovies, Daniel Johnston, The Flying Burrito Brothers, The Kinks, John Cale, NRBQ. And yet it all hangs together beautifully, thanks in large part to the vocal interplay between Ira and Georgia, which has really come into its own. Dave Schramm returns to the lineup on lead guitar, with Al Greller from Dave's band The Shrams on bass. This is one album I never tire of. It was my first introduction to the band way back 30 years ago in college, and it's a very pleasant starting place for listening to Yola Tango, even if it's not really representative of their overall sound. But elements of Fake Book would continue to inform Yola Tango over the years. After the country-sounding interlude of Fake Book, Yola Tango got noisy again on May I Sing With Me from 1992, now aided by James McNew, who finally ended the revolving door of bassists. This same band configuration is still going strong nearly three decades later. May I Sing With Me might not be as consistent as the great albums to come, but it does have some memorable highlights. Upside Down is a power pop gem, and in a perfect world it would have cracked the Billboard charts. And that leads straight into the nine-minute feedback jam Mushroom Cloud of Hiss, in which Ira loses his mind. Some kind of fatigue strikes just the right balance between noise and tunefulness, propelled by Georgia's now very confident drumming. With James on bass cementing their sound, this album can be seen in retrospect as a springboard for the rest of the band's career. Everything comes together beautifully on Painful from 1993, Yola Tango's first album on the Matador label, with distribution from Atlantic, giving them much wider exposure. It feels like a culmination of all their past experiments, building into a cohesive and powerful suite of songs. I'll let the Trouser Press record guide describe it. A serenely atmospheric album most British shoegazer stars would kill to have in their catalog. Using simply held organ chords as a basic structural element, keeping vocals right in the breezeway, and filtering dramatic moany waves of barbed guitar extrusion over placid songs in no hurry to reveal themselves, the trio invents an exquisite world of decorum and revelation a cool sonic oasis that occasionally catches fire. There's not a duff track in the lot, and it includes some of their all-time greats. Big Day Coming, both versions. From a Motel 6, The Whole of the Law, a cover of The Only Ones. Sudden Organ, 
which is best enjoyed in concert for Ira's elbow-flailing, ace-tone organ freakouts, and the slow-build instrumental I Heard You Looking, which is another concert favorite over the years. Painful marks the beginning of Yola Tango's fruitful partnership with producer Roger Moutinho, who would go on to record seven albums with the band. Electropura from 1995 might not quite reach the lofty heights of Painful, but it has some of Yola Tango's finest material, as the band again continues its comfortable, noisy-slash-tuneful alternating pattern. On the tuneful side, Tom Courtney, their homage to British cinema of the 1960s, just might be their tunefulest ever. Beatles fans will appreciate the reference in the song to the movie Help and Eleanor Braun, see her in the arms of Paul saying I can say no more. Elsewhere, the cool brooding Paul is Dead has a Beatles-inspired title, but its subject matter is rather stonesy. By now, George's singing has become a key component to the band's sound, with beautiful, haunting leads on Decora, Pablo and Andrea, and Don't Say a Word, Hot Chicken Number 2. And her vocals serve as the perfect counterpoint to Ira's guitar raving in another one of their patented slow-build closers, Blue Line Swinger. On I Can Hear the Heart Beating as One from 1997, the band is firing on all cylinders, and it's a treat to listen to from beginning to end. Autumn Sweater and Sugar Cube are among their best known and best songs. Bassist James McNew takes his first stab at lead vocals and knocks it out of the park with the sublime Stockholm Syndrome, earning comparisons to Neil Young. Songs like Moby Octopad and Deeper Into Movies find undeniable grooves. From the noisy end, the 10-minute Spec Bebop, to the quiet, Green Arrow, it all works. Even their Bossa Nova foray, Center of Gravity, and their Beach Boys cover, Little Honda. The album closes with one of their sweetest tunes, My Little Corner of the World, originally sung by Anita Bryant, of all people, it has popped up on soundtracks of various television shows, and it's also Ira's mom's favorite. About every year, she's come up on stage to sing it at concerts. I've seen her sing it many times, and it's adorable. Hello, welcome back. Um, you have just been listening to the first eight albums um, of Yoda Tango, uh, and you have been taken through them by Ben Zimmer. Ben is here still. Ben, hello. Hello. And, uh, hello to all the listeners out there. <laughs> we still got Jeffrey. He hasn't run away yet. Hey. Uh, and Jesse. Yo. And Nick. Uh, Nick might disappear occasionally because his internet's apparently bad, but at the moment we've got him. Hey, Nick. Hello. And how many times did you see Yoda Tango? <laughs> I've seen Yoda Tango once in 2018. They came to Budapest. I saw him on a boat. And it was a great gig. Um, I've seen them once as well, um, randomly at all tomorrow's parties. Uh, and Ben, you, you, we forgot to ask you how many times you've seen um, I would say in the same uh, general number as Jeffrey said, 20-ish in the 20s, I would say, because I saw them like Jeffrey for the first time in 1996. But then I was, uh, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't really get to 
uh, start going to lots of their shows until uh, about 2004. I moved to uh, Jersey City, where I live now, which is right next door to Hoboken. Uh, so I was able to see lots of Maxwell shows, lots of Hanukkah shows, basically at least once a year or so, um, um, up through their most recent Hanukkah shows at the end of 2019. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, okay. So in a second, we're going to start with Ride the Tiger, the, the, the first full proper studio LP. Um, I'm going to start by saying, like some of people are now holding, everyone's going to be, everyone's holding up their vinyl, <laughs> uh, which is awesome to see. I'm glad it's vinyl. Um, I'm going to start this by saying I didn't really know Yoda. Um, up until we decided to do this pod, when Ben said this was one he wanted to do, I, I'd seen them once. Oh, there is a CD. <laughs> Jeffrey also has a CD. Um, I, I'd seen them once at, at a festival. Um, I had heard a couple of things here and there, but I knew who they were. But for some reason, they just, I think it, as they got more and more albums, it became something I was quite frightened trying to tackle. Um, and while they were becoming legendary or part of American uh, music history, uh, in the UK, it was there was barely a whisper. Um, all I really knew about them was the Onion headline, uh, the disaster at Yoda Tengo's 32 Records store clerks, something like that, presumed dead. Is that right, Ben? Uh, yeah, that's right. I actually was just uh, rereading that classic. The headline is 37 Record Store Clerks Feared Dead in Yola Tango Concert Disaster from 2002. And it's got so many just classic lines in it. Uh, you know, eyewitnesses reporting. It's just a twisted mass of black frame glasses and ironic Girl Scouts t-shirts in there. <laughs> so I think as we've just established, established they are, they're a band that music fans sometimes love and get obsessed by um and they are almost like the trump card in a well i like this band we're gonna get started with ride the tiger um first time i listened to a week ago and it was a nice easy start i mean i didn't know what i was gonna expect and this was it was a nice simple bit of college rock a little bit of dinosaur jr in there some nice nice melodies jangled along in a really nice way a bit of velvet underground um ben i mean did you start with Ride the Tiger when you first got into them or did you come back to it? Oh, I, I came back to it much later. Yeah, I didn't I didn't really pick up um, Yola Tango until Fakebook, I think, was the first one I listened to. Um, so I went back to those earlier albums once I once I really got into their catalog. For a while, it was kind of hard to get those um, early albums. And uh, that's still an issue a bit just because, you know, once they were on Matador, everything was straightened out. Those those albums are easy to get. But I know that uh, these first few albums that we're going to be talking about may be difficult for people outside of North America to listen to because um, their, their first three uh, on Spotify, at least, only are streaming in North America. So um, there are selections that uh, Europeans and others will be able to listen to from their compilations that are on Spotify. But um, so so even now, it's a little... It's a little tricky to uh, to get hold of it, at least if you're um, in other parts of the world. But um, uh, yeah, because I will say that yeah. I found the first three on Tidal. I got a Tidal subscription. Oh, that's good um, to know. And they they were on there. Um, I'm, this seems to be the sort of thing. Sometimes they're on Deezer in Spain, and sometimes they're on Spotify in the UK, uh, etc. Um, Jesse, you've seen Yoda Tenga five thousand three hundred and sixty-five <laughs> times. Um, <laughs> did you start? at Ride the Tiger? What do you think? Oh, God, heavens no. I, I'm not really a fan of this record <laughs> uh, in the scheme of Yola Tango records. Um, 
I mean, you know, I like it's re- it's it's really really fascinating and and fantastic. I fell in love with the Old Tango much much later. Uh, it around the time I guess was it sometime after I can hear the heart beating is one, um, and then nothing turned itself inside out. Kind of th- those records, and like all bands that I love, I was like, okay, I'm gonna go back to the first album, see where these guys started, and see, and it was just like how is this possibly the same band that I just yeah. have obsessed over for months and months and months? It doesn't sound to my ears. It's it's even now going back to it. I mean, I, I recognize that it's yellow tango now and now I can, I totally hear it, but it's still, there's still something very alien um, sounding about it to me. I don't, I don't often send people to this record when they're getting into the band, um, but there's songs on it that I love that still, you know, turn up in yellow tango shows. The cone of silence is still, still something they play. That's, uh, and the evil that men do kind of became uh, is sort of a staple of the first half of the career. I'm also a Yola Tango uh, tape collector. So I guess I think about things in terms of um, periods like that as well. But uh, it, the, it feels like, uh, you know, it feels like the first album on a box set to me, almost like demos or, or kind of these early ideas that aren't totally, you know, their voice isn't totally there yet. So I, I, I kind of think of it as fascinating, but it's, it fe- sometimes feels, you know, like a footnote. Um, you know, well, Jeffrey's Jeffrey, got two copies, so yeah, Jeffrey, Jeffrey has shown us shown us two copies of this. Um, so if it's so much different than the, the latest stuff, Jeffrey, where does this fit for you? Um, well, I just wanted you? to uh, I wanted to ask Jesse when you say that you're into Yola Tango from a tape angle, you mean live tape specifically? Yeah, yeah. Because well, I just wanted to, wanted that... the audience to hear that to be aware of that because that might not be. See, I'm when you say that I'm. Um, we, what a name that we have not mentioned yet that will probably get mentioned in this context is the Grateful Dead because the Grateful Dead <laughs> is a band the only band that I've seen more times than Yola Tango but but the number of times I've seen Yola Tango is starting to creep up on the amount of times that I saw the Grateful Dead during their lifetime um, which actually ironically because Jerry Garcia died in 1995 and I started seeing Yola Tango shows in 1996 so it's sort of like they stepped in and took the place of me going to see Grateful Dead shows. Although I never traveled the country following Yola Tango around the way I did with the Grateful Dead. But when you say getting more into like the tapes, I immediately understand what you mean as a Grateful Dead fan, because that's the terminology that people use if they're really into live recordings of the Grateful Dead. That was always a thing. You would trade these cassettes and tapes. But for people listening in Europe and England and outside of the United States, where the Grateful Dead and tape culture, Grateful Dead live concert tape culture is not known, I think we should just specify that when Jesse means he's into Yola Tango in terms of tapes, he doesn't just mean that... He doesn't just want the vinyl and the CD format. He, he enjoys their releases as they exist on cassette format. No, he means literally live recordings, live tapes. Yes, the is, proverbial is this, tapes. Is this why when you look at bands like Fish, P-H, there seems to be a gazillion fish in New Orleans, 13th of October, 12th. There's, there's, the, the internet is, is awash with these things. Is, Jeffrey, have you, were you a Grateful Dead tape collector? <laughs> not as i mean i have yeah okay well anyway as far as the grateful dead and tapes and live tapes and what jesse said about yola tango live tapes um i'm unaware i've wondered this for a while but um you know obviously for bands in the in the 70s particularly but 60s and 70s the live album was a thing and as of yet there isn't really there's no yola tango live album is there um whereas you know the grateful dead from very early on in their career live dead the, the, the double album Live Dead that came out in 1970 is, you know, I think maybe the fourth official Grateful Dead album is already a live album. And it's one of the all time classic Grateful Dead albums, whereas Yola Tango could have been releasing. In fact, they even mock 
in the, in the video for Sugar Cube, they mock the idea that they should release a double live album. There's a little joke in that video. So for some reason, even though their live shows are such a spectacular element of what Yola Tango is all about, and really a band that, similar to the Grateful Dead, the idea of getting to know the band via only their studio recordings without seeing them live, you're really going to miss a big chunk of what makes this band... I think if you only knew Yola Tango from the studio recordings, you would be... You would think this band was awesome, and you would love the variety. You would love the, you know, the the melodic element, the noisy element, the creativity, the personality. But um, the true artistry of this band, the true genius of Yola Tango, is the way that they approach what a live concert can be. The way that they use their artistic sensibility towards the curation of a set list and the experience of a live concert as a unique thing that happens on that one night only that will never be repeated, no matter how many times you see them. Um, that element of their artistic creativity is so important to their identity that I think merely a discussion of their studio albums is interesting, but it sh we should make clear that that, you know, for those of us who are massive Yola Tango fans, it's that live experience that's a big part of that. Um, this is going to be the point where after somebody passionately explains that the live thing is just as important, I'm now going to say, but and Jeffrey... How about the first album? <laughs> now, now, totally, I totally understand um, how the live thing with some bands, and I want us to come back to that later, particularly as their sound evolves, but in terms of the first album. Yeah, I love it. I love that first record. Um, unlike Jesse, who thinks of it as sort of a footnote, a uh, little appendage. We see, when I first got into Yola Tango in 1996, circa the release of uh, Electro Pura, which came out, I think, in 1995, um, and I first started seeing their shows in 96 and just became a diehard fan, I started getting my hands on all of their albums wherever I could find them at that time, whether I ended up getting it on a CD or on a cassette or on a used vinyl. So by the time nothing turned itself inside out, or um, I guess by the time I Can Hear the Heart Beating as one came out, 1997 or 98-ish, I already had all of, I had accumulated all of their previous albums. So to me, their their body, the first 10 years of their body of work was part of my initial dive into like, this band is now one of my favorite bands. Oh, here's a record of theirs I haven't got before. It's only $7 on used vinyl here at my local shop. I'll check this one out. I don't know anything about it. So Ride the Tiger came to me in that way. Um, and my brother Jack shared my, my huge fandom. So we would always be bringing home and we shared a bedroom. So we would always kind of be like, hey, I got this Yellow Tango album or we'd, you know, so I love Ride the Tiger. Um, it's a great melodic rock album with some cool noisy elements. I definitely, I differentiate pretty heavily between the pre-James McNew, Yola Tango, and um, I feel like when James joins the band, it's like, okay, now the real Yola Tango story starts. So those early albums are kind of a slightly different band identity before it coalesces around the, the power trio of, of uh, Georgia, Ira, and James. Yeah, so on that, um, and we'll probably cover it because uh, James turned up with May I Sing With Me? Am I correct? I, I'm often wrong with things, so feel free to, to tell me I'm wrong. With, with, um, there was like a revolt. It was like Spinal Tap for bassists, but without the deaths, right? There was just the bassists just kept disappearing and coming back. And additional, yeah, about it. Uh, and more additional guitarists as well. I mean, they, they are not like, I feel like them as a three-piece band which kind of goes with like, yo, La Tank. It's like three words in the name, three people in the band. <laughs> There's something about that identity that really clicks once James becomes a solid member of the band, then it really becomes this unit of this little family of three. Um, whereas on the earlier albums, there's like more musicians involved sometimes. And 
Um, but however, unlike, you know, the way Jesse thought this album sounded like a little collection of demos or sort of an unformed band, I'm always astonished at how fully developed they, like, this is like, uh-huh. if some friends of mine were like, hey, we just put out an album, we've been a band for like a year or two, I'd be totally blown away. I mean, the songs, the musicianship, the <laughs> the ability to still, even from the get-go, there's this Ira's guitar playing, his ability to play like real guitar, where he can actually play an actual solo and do finger picking and do, you know, real songs, and his interest in being noisy and kind of like exploding the parameters of what you would think a guitarist would would do melodically and and with incorporating you know screeching sounds is so exciting and it's all that's all present in there and plus you have the ira and georgia like here's this couple she's playing the drums he's playing guitar so and it's awesome i mean the songs are awesome the recordings are great i think even if there was no later yola tango this would still be a fantastic 80s indie rock album and people would buy this record the same way they buy you know, the first Dream Syndicate album or the first Feelies album or something. It's like an 80s indie rock, mid-80s classic. Um, I think and I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take what you just said about how it actually sounded quite developed for a first album and take that moving into New Wave Hot Dogs. Um, I found that when I first listened to New Wave Hot Dogs, it sounded simpler and almost less accomplished as an album i mean whether or not it's they were just trying something different they're different musicians different producers maybe um i found that the sound sort of simplified a little bit i mean it starts with clunk which is which is great um let's compromise also you know, there's some good stuff in there but i found the sound changed dramatically and um, ben what happened uh well they did simplify their sound a bit uh you know on that on that first album uh dave schram plays on it and he would he would come back into the lineup uh, uh occasionally but uh so dave schram is is out of there for new wave hot dogs um and um ira who is you know as jeffrey was saying was pretty already pretty accomplished for a young man on guitar on that first album he has to really step it up both for guitar playing and i would say his vocals as well he's he's getting more and more confident um and uh, Dave Schramm actually does some vocals on that first album, but it's it's just Ira. Of course, we're still kind of waiting to hear George's vocals. Those those will come a bit later when it turns out, you know, she's really the, the secret weapon there. Um, and so, I mean, when I listen to that, I, I, I hear Ira still kind of um, figuring out the direction that he wants to take the band. He's He's got so many different ideas, so many influences. He's kind of immersed in that, you know, jangle rock sound of you know bands like the DBs or the Feelies who were who he was friends with and who would they would all play at Maxwell's in Hoboken um, and uh, you know you get you get uh, a, you know the obscure Velvet Underground track you know showing their their influences and then um, you know even more obscure the song you mentioned Let's Compromise that was done by this band called Information um, which uh, you know Ira knew from back in the day. When he was uh, when he was a rock journalist for um, for New York Rocker, uh, Jesse, I'm sure can uh, correct me if I'm making any historical errors here. Oh yeah, I was going to say the empty the empty pool was a cover song of a song that wasn't even released yet at that point. That was a song by uh, Young Woo, which was a spinoff band of the Feelies, and they eventually they put that album they put that song out after New Wave Hot Dogs came out on their on their album on Coyote Records. But uh, but Yola Tango's cover predated predated the 
official version. That is the ultimate uh, cool hipster way to cover somebody. We're covering <laughs> stuff you haven't even released yet. Um, Nick, I'm going to come to you. Uh, just, just uh, you also like me are relatively relative newcomer uh, to Yoda Tango. Um, Ride the Tiger, New Wave, Hot Dogs. I mean, this early college rock '80s band. How how did you find it? Um, difficult to get hold of is the honest answer. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't. I didn't get a chance to listen to it this week. It's just not. A, it's really hard to get hold of in Europe. That's great that there's still obscure music out there. I'm serious. <laughs> <laughs> you you got to got to work for it. <laughs> I, I literally had to take a, a one month subscription to Tidal. Other music streaming services are available, uh, so that I could actually hear it. Um, Jeffrey, over to you. Um, what do you think changed, uh, or maybe on a songwriting level or on a musicianship level? Well, I have to admit that my experience of New Wave Hot Dogs is a little scrambled because I own it on the double out. Like they, it's this mid ninety. This came out in ninety six. Um, it's a double album reissue of President Yola Tango and New Wave Hot Dogs in one like maxi LP edition, and I didn't even consciously realize until right now that this double LP edition puts President Yola Tango first and New Wave Hot Dogs is the second disc. So yes, I've never <laughs> I've never even consciously realized like, oh, wait a minute, that's not the order they, I'm, all these years, the, the entire time that I've been listening, the 25 years that I've been listening to this record, I'm experiencing those in non-chronological order. Uh, my OCD brain is, is freaking out. <laughs> I, I think it's an amazing collection of songs. It's very interesting to me to wonder what a fan might have thought, somebody who bought uh, ride the tiger and then this came out afterwards like what was somebody thinking and who was buying these like how popular were these records at the time um was it just a very small handful of people that how rare is the original version of new wave hot dogs i don't know if i've ever seen an original copy of it ever anywhere it, do, it doesn't exist in europe as, as we've discovered uh, um yeah but yeah i i managed i when i was streaming it it was the, the double uh, President Yoda Tenga New Wave Hot Dogs. And I had to go and look on Wikipedia to find out which song to first. So that's a totally weird sort of situation. Um, I I understand the band in the first two albums. Uh, as someone coming to you, I understand who they are and what they do. I will be honest, over the last week and a half, the more I've listened to and started to like and even love uh, bits of Yoda Tenga, the less I've understood who they are as a group some bands i can pigeonhole that's this band that's this band some bands have periods some bands like yola tango seem to be 12 different bands in one album yet still the same the same artist um i'm still struggling to understand who they are um and i think it was with president yola tango moving on to the next one that i first started to get a bit confused <laughs> i thought i knew who this band was and then we've got what um two versions of the evil that men do um it was going back slightly going back to what you said earlier about they've not done a live album this sounded like an attempt to have a live experience vinyl with these sort of wig outs and going and going off in different directions and two versions of one thing um yeah this is when i got confused a little bit and had to stop and have a cup of tea okay well, I, can i can i i'd like to step because i actually want to mention say something about new wave hot dogs before we get fully immersed in the future stuff because ev everything that jeffrey said about the first album is kind of what i feel about new wave hot dogs where i kind of see their songwriting starting to coalesce and kind of the way that i think about yellow tango like you, exactly like you said other bands have periods 
And I kind of think of Yola Tango as having like threads that they have these kind of like different ideas that are kind of developed that kind of come in and out of their music over the course of you know all these these different decades where kind of like jangle pop is in there and you've you've got you know noisy like straight up you know screeching guitars but also this very atmospheric side and then this thread of of you know kind of creating their own songbook of covers like kind of their own repertoire of you know their canon of you know their favorite extremely obscure artists and 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 all of these things are kind of like in different balances on all these different projects. And and for me, I see that, I guess with Ride the Tiger, it's kind of like murky for me. And I kind of see them beginning to emerge with New Wave Hot Dogs. And then kind of, every, and then President Yola Tengo and kind of everything that after comes after that, it's kind of like the introduction of like new characters. It's like, oh, and they can jam too, you know? And that, you know, that's kind of like a lot of what President Yola Tengo is for me. It's like, oh, whoa, you know, that those versions of the evil men do like appeal, you know, Jeffrey already hijacked us into Grateful Deadland, but I'm also from 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 that world very, very much. And like hearing those multiple versions of the evil that men do, it's like, oh, it's like the song isn't like this sacred thing, like where it's just like, oh, this is the song as it was recorded on the album and that's how it's going to be. And then every live version has to replicate how it was on the album. It's like, no, we're going to put two different versions of the same song on the album that are totally different and you know, that's already a cover of our song from a previous record. And it kind of creates this, you know, it's something that's to me, it like points to a musical world that's like beyond what you're hearing on the albums. And and that's like sort of the, the Grateful Daddy appeal to me is that the albums are really like the like, you know, the, the tip of the iceberg or, or, you know, just sort of like one one piece of the puzzle. So they're sort of creating their own universe that they keep popping into as they go through the albums. I'm yeah, try- and, and inventing it as they go, you know? And I, I wanted to point out also, when you were talking about your experience of hearing these albums for the first time and trying to figure out who this band is in a chronological way, which is a wonderful, I think that's such a great experiment. I'm so jealous of you getting to <laughs> Very People very rare, I, I kind of thought like, well, one day, you know, if I ever have a kid, it would be a good science experiment if I just introduce them to the Beatles one album at a time chronologically. Because nobody gets to experience a band that way. You always hear, like, they're more popular, you know, whatever the... And then you hear the earlier stuff retroactively. So it's very rare outside of the moment when these things are actually being released that somebody experiences the development, the cognitive development of a band. And that's a magical, wonderful thing. I mean, can you imagine getting into the first... Beatles album and then the next release and then like whoa this is getting interesting with the next release and then you know and then experiencing that development as an actual linear progression rather than just a hodgepodge like all of us experience Bob Dylan as a hodgepodge we experience you know the fall as a hodgepodge like nobody gets a chronological I'm, listen I, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in right now because Nick has his Big grin on his face. Um, this podcast came out of a Facebook and the Facebook group. Nick, how did that Facebook group start? Basically, in uh, 2015, me and a bunch of friends decided to listen to the entire full discography in chronological order. <laughs> and then somehow... Was anybody, hearing it, was anybody hearing it all for the first time? Um, there were a few non-fans. I imagine they knew bits of it. But that was also what was kind of exciting about it for me. I mean, I was I was already a huge Fall fan at that point, but I'd never tried to listen to them all in, in order like that. Um, but yeah, it was kind of interesting hearing them with people who were also kind of, yeah, were discovering it. And, uh, you know, there were mixed reactions. Um, <laughs> Ewan famously doesn't like the Fall. And uh, I, I, 
Peel. <laughs> it's a very personal thing about Marquis e. Smith and with John Peel and the night John Peel died and I bear a grudge. But that's a different story and a different podcast. <laughs> was there ever a Yola Tango Peel session? Did Yola Tango ever do a Peel session? They did. They did. Uh, there's actually a track from it on their brand new uh, release. Uh, their, their cover of uh, uh, Train to Cry by Bob Dylan. They didn't record it there. They, they recorded it in Hoboken and mailed it in and they apparently lost their master <laughs> um but yes there and i think there might be a couple but that that's that's definitely one of them well anyway, i i what i meant to say, what i meant to say before i sidetracked everybody is that i love in uh in jesse's book big day coming um there's a description somewhere in here that i remember i don't remember what page it was on but talking about their early years and how the band sort of started to gain an identity in a sort of, I think you say something about the negative space. They started to, by first deciding that they on tour they were not going to play any songs that they had played the previous night, and they started started to define themselves by what they were not. These sort of sets of rules of like, okay, well we're not going to do, and they sort of start the Yellow Tango identity starts to take shape out of this negative space of um, these different kind of self definitions. So I forget exactly how you worded it, but that really stuck with. I thought that was a very beautiful yeah. image the way that you put that. And I don't know what page that was on in the book, but I'm trying to remember I, the one the, the the part of the pop song is actually before they were Yola Tango, they were uh, a, a variety of cover bands, uh, George, Georgia and those guys mainly, and they made a rule during that era that they didn't repeat any cover songs from party to party, and they learned like you know thirty or forty different cover songs like you know to back their friends, kind of like live live human karaoke, um, and now I think that was kind of one one. One, one beginning of that. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take what you. Sorry, I'm gonna take what you just said and slightly move us on. You can come back if you want, but I think mm-hmm. it's a perfect segue. Also, I'm very conscious we've only got to the third album. Um, <laughs> I'm talking about the cover, the fact that they do lots of, they they were a covers, and um, I'm a big fan of of bands that do good things and who cover intro. And this does lead us on to fake. Um, rather nicely, um, which was 1990, Ben? Is that correct? Yeah, that's right, 1990. Uh, yeah, I was in college then. This was my introduction to the band. I didn't know about their their noisier side, their more uh, improvisational or even avant-garde side. Um, when I first encountered Yola Tango, they were like, oh, they're, they're a band that does these you know cool covers from this album, Fake Book. Um, and they had this kind of you know, folk rock, country rock sound to a lot of the a lot of the songs. Um, you know, they're they're and they're they're clearly into you know bands like the Flying Burrito Brothers or uh, or the Kinks or NRBQ, one of Ira's favorites. Um, and they just it's like oh this is cool. It's a band that's just playing music that they like. And then I would dig a little deeper and be like oh they're actually also covering their own songs, like Barnaby Hardly Working. That's you know that was. Uh, that was from President Yola Tango. And then Did I Tell You, which is one of my favorite Yola Tango songs, perhaps my favorite. It has special meaning for my wife and me. But uh, Did I Tell You was, you know, first on New Wave Hot Dogs and then gets this beautiful reinterpretation on fake book. Um, and so, you know, that that was that was what I thought Yola Tango was. Of course, as I followed them through their career, they became all these other bands as well. But I'll always have, a, you know, a soft spot in my heart for, for his fake book songs. I mean, a lot to me. Um, for me, the one that stood out, probably because we did Daniel Johnson on the Facebook group within the last year, was Speed and Motorcycle. Uh, I think I, that's one I'd heard before I went went to. Um, but yeah, it was, it was lovely. It was really nice. And there were songs I'd never heard. And But if that had been the first album I'd ever come to, I would not have experienced after four. Um, I mean, it's a bit weird to talk about a covers album, but... 
it was relatively important. Yeah, at the time, did it get them any semblance of success from it? Did well, it get any- yeah. Um, well, I mean, it's certainly a hook to talk about that it's a covers album, and it's not, you know. That is the hook, but there's a bunch of original songs on there too, you know, that are fantastic. Um, and oddly, "Speeding Motorcycle" was sort of uh, kind of a uh, you know a hook for indie successor. And they put there's a single version of "Speeding Motorcycle," not the album version of them backing Daniel Johnston uh, live on WFMU, uh, which is kind of a miraculous event by itself. Um, but that was released as as a single, and that that was kind of one of their sort of their breakthroughs and kind of like the the late you know, late eighties, early nineties, like, you know, indie college rock zine world, sort of a mini hit, but fake book was definitely, was definitely a breakthrough. And, you know, so when that's when Georgia really arrives as a singer, like I was saying, it's kind of the introduction of these different characters and different threads and my God, you know, Georgia, like it's, it's kind of amazing that they were a band for, you know, basically more than a half a decade before she became, it's, you know, it's like, Oh my, you know, kind of a singer that a lot of people identify with that band we had just glimmers of that on the earlier albums like Ali Da you know that you know there were songs where Georgia was kind of tentatively taking lead vocals but yeah fake book it's like this is the way the band should be from now on obviously so um, it's and, great to hear and that. Jeffrey um we, we talked a little bit we mentioned earlier on about they had this rotating uh selection of bass players and, and musicians which in the next album which will come to soon um it seemed to stop and steady um for me fake book seems like the end of a period um, there's this sort of run-up period to fake book, and then things change after that. Am I wrong on this? Uh, how do you see it? Well, in my opinion, which doesn't seem to be widely shared, I mean, I, in of the albums that I consider like the first phase of, like you know, up until um, I can hear the heart beating as one, say, which which seems like, and then you know, like Genius Plus Love, which is also sort of like a collection that which I would include in the discography, really. But um, the Fake book is like maybe my is like my least favorite of for the first ten years worth of records, like the eighties and nineties albums. It's one that I very rarely I can't even remember the last time I listened to it. I I, uh, I guess I only have do I maybe I only have it on cassette, which is part of why I don't return to it often. But I, it's like by the end, it kind of it just goes on too long for me. It doesn't have the it doesn't have as much variety on it. You know, like. When, you know, Emulsify comes on, I'm like, okay, great, a little action. <laughs> it kind of just hits the same sort of mid-tone. Like, it doesn't have as much variety on it as the other albums. And it, yeah, I I just feel like when I listen to that album, I'm kind of ready to be done listening to it. And there's still like seven songs left. <laughs> so, so, so could, could, could we say that maybe, I mean, Yoda Tango were a band who over the years have developed multiple threads, multiple styles, sometimes on the same album, sometimes in different albums. Yet maybe with this album, they only approached the covers with one of their styles or one or two, and they left some of the other facets of Yoda Tango to the side. Yeah, somewhat, yeah. although that could have been their new direction. I mean, every album after Fake Book could have had that they could have been like oh well we're leaving behind our youthful noisy elements and now we are a mature nice sounding band i mean there was no reason to believe that that wouldn't be who would have thought that they would get so noisy again on the next right you know that they would turn more back in a rock direction and i i well i think that's a very big personality thing with them uh you know i think fake book when they did it was was definitely a breakthrough it's really the first where you can actually kind of like if you've never heard them before 
you can listen to that record and sort of say, oh, yeah, they're this is who they are. Like it's a it's a pretty obvious, straightforward record in a lot of ways. And I think when that and I, I know when that record came out, they started getting invitations to like, oh, you know, come do this acoustic gig or this thing. And I think they really pushed against that and really, you know, they didn't intend it to be like this is who we are now forever. I think for them, it was just like this is one of the things that we do. And it's manifesting on this record. And I think there was a lot of, I think there was a lot of pushback. I think, you know, I think a lot of Yola Tango is sometimes born out of, you know, like, you know, creative, fi- creative ways to not do what they're asked to do. Um, you know, Ewan was saying about not being able to really tell who they are. Is, is that there's a sort of stubborn refusal to be defined by the last thing that they did. And even though there is a very consistent sound throughout the discography, it does feel very much like they never got to a point where they said, well, this is who we are now. This is what we do. And you can know what to expect from us in future. Before we move on. Sorry, go ahead. I I will say, I'm going to come back to that idea of of progressing and not changing in approximately five albums time. Um, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to say, uh, before we move on from Fake Book, uh, it was very interesting to hear Jeffrey's take on it. Um, it, perhaps he's not a fan of the album overall, if it sounds a bit too much the same, but there's one song on there that I definitely associate with Jeffrey because I saw him, uh, chip in on a performance of it at the 20, at a 2018 Hanukkah show for Yola Tango when they had Peter Stamfel on stage, uh, to join in on Griselda, a Peter Stamfel song from the great album Have Moisey. Um, and so, uh, one of the special guests that night was Peter Stamfel and of course, they did Griselda and uh, Jeffrey. Jeffrey was right there alongside them. Uh, Jeffrey and Peter Stample have collaborated many times over the years. So in my mind, at least, uh, you know, Jeffrey, I, I think of you having that connection to at least that one song. On. Well, th- without getting too far into the weeds, they had me on stage that <laughs> night doing a fog song. Um, oh, new, oh, new, am- new Amphetamine Shriek, which is partially, which is like, because I have this whole thing, the history of the development of punk on the Lower East Side where the song, one of the songs that I use to talk about the history of Lower East Side music is New Amphetamine Shriek, Shriek, which was a Fugs song that happened to be written by Peter Stamfel when he was in the Fugs. So I think just knowing that I'm somewhat associated with this Lower East Side history of punk essay thing that I once wrote, and uh, since they had Stamfel on stage, it somehow made sense to bring me to join. Like, you know, they always have reason. I love that Yola Tango always has reasons for what they do it's quite brilliant that's one of the most brilliant things about them when you see them play a gig they're playing these they're picking their set list and their covers and their choices of guests for specific reasons that may or may not be obvious to the audience but they're brilliant and they always outsmart you they you always think like oh because this i know what such and such was in the news today and so you always you start to like try to put yourself in their head and think of what they're going to do and why they're going to do it. And then they come up with something that's even more brilliant than you thought. They're like, they, so yeah, when they had me on stage, it was to participate with Peter Stamfel on a performance of new amphetamine shriek, which is, uh, which is a fug song that Stamfel wrote and kind of the, just the through line. And also just because it was at a, it was at the Bowery ballroom and it was like, yeah. And, and, it, there were there are a few different threads of why it made sense to have me on join on stage for that one song with Peter. Um, but I have performed Griselda is a song that I've done because I've done a number of tours. I have a sort of side project band that's the the Jeffrey Lewis and Peter Stanfield band, and we've done a couple albums together and some tours together. So Griselda is one of the songs that I've performed with Peter 
Stamfel when when we've toured together. Um, but I was not. I did not play Griselda on stage with Yola Tango and Peter Stamfel that night at the Bowery. It was New Amphetamine Shriek by the Fugs okay. that we did together. <laughs> sorry, sorry for yeah, uh, getting the, the, the uh, I mean, concert order wrong there. But but but, <laughs> but, connect, but connected to that 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 thought, one of the things that I just deeply love about. Not every single cover Yola Tango does, but but a lot of them, and you know, New Amphetamine Shriek, and and the other Fug songs I've seen them do, and and a lot of fake book, is that you don't think of them as like a folk band really, but I feel like a lot of the music that they pull, it, it, that they cover, really does come out of the 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 scene, the kind of lineage that they're that they're part of. They they play songs that their friends wrote. They you know they they play songs by you know by pe- people like Peter Stample, who's sort of you know they're they're elder in kind of this underground New York music scene. Um, and I you know so that is you know it's sort of like what Jeffrey was saying. There's there's such a conscious choice behind almost you know behind everything they do, <laughs> every single thing they do, and um and the, the 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 choices of covers. There's there's always there's there's always a lot of resonance there. Right, and you could you could get by the fact that Peter Stample was there that night as one of their special guests, and the fact that they did a Michael Hurley cover on their most recent record at that time. People like Jesse and I were already thinking, you know what, they're going to have Stample play on that Michael Hurley cover because Stample and Hurley are old musical acquaintances going back to the '60s, and they have to have Moisey album together. That's uh, you know that Griselda comes from this album that was a Michael Hurley Peter Stample collaboration. So spot on. Yes, they had Peter Stample up on stage to do the Michael Hurley cover with them. So that kind of little mathematical equation is something that like super fans like Jesse and myself are already calculating like, okay, I know we're going to get, which is something that was so much fun at Grateful Dead shows too, doing these kind of calculations before the show. Like, okay, tonight Jerry's going to sing the first song and they haven't done Mississippi Half Step yet on this tour. And so there's always like little reasons why you can figure out or try to figure out what they're thinking. So, um, yeah, that that goes into that as well. Okay, um, it's probably a good time to 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 move on to when they get they finally settle on a bassist. Um, new joins for uh, May I Sing with Me. Um, the sound seems to change a little bit, not so much as maybe the next album, which we'll get to. But after having that bookend of other people's songs. We're back to their stuff. And how has their stuff changed by this point, Ben? Well, I think the addition of James McNew, as uh, Jeffrey and Jesse were saying, really solidified their sound at this point. Um, and yes, they're they're turning their back on the the pleasant uh, sort of country rock sound of, of fake book, and they're getting noisy again. Um, uh, but, you know, there's still some, I mean, there are some extremely noisy parts like Mushroom Cloud of Hiss, um, which is one of the great ones, which, again, you can only imagine Ira just going nuts on that one the way that he often does in concert on that kind of jam with lots of, you know, feedback drenched sounds um, that became, you know, an important part of their repertoire at that point. But then you get something like Upside Down, again, like one of my favorite songs of theirs, which you know, in a perfect world would have been, you know, a radio hit. It's just like this really great power pop song. Um, so they're just showing their range, you know, they're just very confident across this whole range of genres. Um, and um, George's drumming sounds great. I mean, the whole the whole package is there with, with uh, James on bass um, that, you know, it was sort of the launching point. I, I still think of May I Sing With Me as kind of a lesser album because the ones that follow are so good. Um, but you can see, you know, they, they have a handle on what they want to be at this point. Yeah, they're starting the run up towards the later stuff. Um, Nick, 
Um, you you couldn't you couldn't find the the earlier stuff. It was too obscure for for Budapest. Um, were you able to were you able to find to, to able to listen to uh, May I Sing with Me? And what did you think of the evolution of sound as someone else who was coming through them? Yeah, I think I mean you know again this is this is the caveat that I didn't really get to listen to the very early stuff. But this is kind of where I do start enjoying them for sure. Um, they just feel like there's a uh, uh moving on in the sound and, and and i wasn't i mean you know there's bits of fake book i like but i'm not as comfortable with the kind of country sound of that mm -hmm. so when they kind of i guess move more towards kind of indie rock kind of sounds that's when i it's kind of my more it's more my comfort zone i guess i guess so i mean I, and for me with this album and the one that followed um there was definitely a shoegaze sound that sort of came into it um Actually, was shoegaze a thing in the US? I was wondering that actually, because I kind of associate yeah. Yola Tango a bit with shoegaze, but I don't remember, I don't really think of a shoegaze oh. thing in the US. Well, they, I mean, they played shows with My Bloody Valentine in, in, in England, and they were definitely, they were definitely grouped in with that at the time. I mean, they, it's, I mean, that's a really, Yola Tango are chameleon like in that they got grouped in with so many different periods and so many different things. You know, you look at early reviews from like Ride the Tiger and they're, you know, called Amera Indie, which is kind of like this, you know, you know, Robert Criscow's term for like, you know, jangly indie rock. And then later they get called, you know, college rock or then they become shoegaze. And I'm positive I've read things that called them grunge and then they become indie rock. <laughs> and it's, you know, they, they become all these and then you know it's yola tango it's kind of them in the middle and and when james joined to i mean i and i'm you know if you ask them that's when they became that's when they became yola tango he's such a brilliant bassist and i you know it, it, it's not like you know that's that's sort of the role of the bassist. it's not always not always totally obvious but it, he's so melodic and it's um it had an effect on like the earlier stuff too like you know I went back and actually I was I just compared versions of the story of jazz from the the, the studio version from from New of Hot Dogs with the with a James version and it just becomes a different song like he he has this whole melodic counterpoint baseline that just like pulls everything together and I feel like that he just played that role so well and he just it made all it he reflects well on their earlier material and just you know so may I sing with me is just this is it, it's such a pivot album in that way though he's you know like like ben was saying you know they, they get so much better right after that because he's it's sort of a batch of songs where um he wasn't yet part of the writing process which which comes in after that so it's yeah great great stuff oh and what, what, what i want to add one more thing which is that you know we talk about how these albums are really you know they, they, they change a lot between the albums you don't necessarily know what you're going to get from one album to the other but live that's the thing is that they were consistent live and you you kind of know that when you go see a tango live really starting kind of in this period when james joins the band that you're going to get these amazing guitar jams you're going to get these amazing like atmospheric you know space outs which is kind of starts in this period as well and you know that that does and you're going to get you know, sort of fake booky kind of covers and and quiet and quiet country moments, and you're you're going to get all of that at once. So the live show was always kind of like a consistent counterpoint to these albums where they were kind of exploring all these different things. If you went to see them live, you'd probably get all of that in one night. You know, many nights. Well, uh, a, a couple of things. I'm um, first uh, uh, again, like my um, the fact that I don't rate Facebook a uh, 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 fake book very highly. I <laughs> I do rate. Um, May I sing with me is I might almost call it my favorite Yola Tango record. It certainly would be in wow. my top my top three. Um, if somebody was looking to get into Yola Tango and I was going to recommend a couple records for them to check out, this would be one of them. Um, 
it's song by song and sound by sound. I just find this album devastatingly good. Um, I like it better than Painful. I know people will be uh, weirded out to hear me say that, but that just seems obvious to me. Um, you know, Detouring America with Horns, perfect opening track. Uh, Upside Down as the second track, amazing. Uh, followed by third track, Mushroom Cloud of Hiss. Like, who's mo- hearing this record, one song after another, whose jaw is not on the floor? It's it just, dem- like, what is this? Bi- this band, this is the greatest, you know, and then you've got the complete <laughs> atmospheric on, you know, always something and satellite are these creepy, atmospheric, hooky, you know, amazing songs that just haunt you and stay with you. Um, Out the Window, 86 Second Blowout, and then Sleeping Pill, this other incredible wash drone, which to my mind is much better than I Heard You Looking. I, you know, I just, this record, I just eat it up. I just, (laughs) this is just essence of perfection. Um, Give it, you know, there's, I could probably do, you know, six and a half minutes of five-cornered drone. I could maybe, this album would be, you know, maybe a little more perfect without that. That's like not as mind-blowing as the other stuff on it. But still in all, this gets absolute top marks from me. And also, I think it's very important that this is evidence that the classic Yola Tango masterpiece sound is not, they had it before Roger Mutino entered the picture. Like, I love those albums that Roger produced and they're complete masterpieces. But if not for this record, you would be tempted to attribute that master period to his production because he produced all the other albums of that era. So this one is also kind of like a little proof that like it's the band themselves, not just the production that has that incredible sound. And one Um, more thing, when you're talking about when you're talking about the guitar freakouts on uh, Mushroom Cloud of Hiss, and the other stuff that Ira was doing and that he'd continue to do through this period. Um, I'm going to take a guess and say that this guitar pedal that I'm holding up here, um, which you're not going to be able to see on the audio version of this podcast, the DL Line 6 loop pedal, which was probably top of the line uh, digital guitar pedal. It's this giant thing that, no, you know, I'm, I, don't, I used to carry these around on tour like 15 years ago, but it's, it's so heavy and big and I don't bother. And it only makes a 20 second loop. And I'm pretty sure that a lot of Ira's sound and a lot of the kind of experiments that they were doing had something to do with this particular pedal being an Ira's pedal lineup at that time. The way that you hear those little repeating squeaks and mushroom cloud, because this only records a 20 second loop. You can't, you know, so you keep hearing these things weaving in and out and creating this beautiful texture um, in a way that I don't think you would have done without the limitations of this pedal. Um, I think their move kind of into the atmospheric stuff and, and Ira discovering how to do things like that is kind of maybe like the missing piece in a lot of ways between kind of the noisier early Yola Tango stuff and then the the, the, the quieter songy things that they got into with fake book. It's, you know, I I think when you have this kind of middle ground where it is, it is very jammy and it is, you know, it does appeal to my Grateful Dead brain. Um, I, I, I think that is the that sort of the tissue between between the different the different parts of the band okay uh, so i mean would you say that that may i sing with me and and, and the follow-up uh painful are a, a companion pieces to each other as they sort of evolved they got settled in the new lineup or is there much difference between the two well painful was for them a real that was a big breakthrough for them that was where they kind of went 
you know, they demoed everything. They spent, you know, months and months in the rehearsal space. That was the first one where they really collaborative, collaboratively writing with James and his voice, especially his singing voice. Holy shit. Uh, that's when that <laughs> kind of, you know, kind of comes into things. Um, so I think that, you know, companions, yes, but... I'm going to have to go back and re-listen to, man, Jeffrey, you just made an amazing case for me, for me. I sing with me. I'm going to listen to that later. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be right back. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, paint. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's funny because I, I kind of sometimes forget about me. I sing with me just in my own memory of the band, because like I said, fake book was this, my introduction to it, even though it was kind of a misleading introduction. Cause that wasn't really what the band was about as a whole. Um, but may I sing with me? I, I don't remember listening to it when it was new, but I definitely remember listening to painful because, you know, when that came out in 1993, I was out of college, living in New York. And it was just, I just associated with that time in New York so vividly. Um, so yeah, may I sing with me for me gets a little lost in the shuffle and then boom, painful. This is the band, you know, the band that I would sort of become obsessed with. And, you know, that's, you know, starting with Painful and yeah. that's how I, I remember it. I mean, it's been interesting for me because obviously 1993, I've been trying to place what was happening with generally music everywhere and UK was going through certain periods and and my opinion of America was, oh, grunge is gone. I don't know what's, grunge is sort of still happening over there. Um, listening to Painful, I was like, oh, this is this is like a My Bloody Valentine. This is their Loveless. This is, they've, they've suddenly got this big, spacious, yet intricate, wall of sound with melodies in there um but I, I i would not have placed it as an album from 1993 i'd have maybe put it a couple of years early. one thing about that time period well actually i i i um i'm gonna act like i'm adding a smart comment but jesse has already written extensively about this in his book so <laughs> you know the funding that was available for indie music right. you suddenly enter a completely different realm painful is like a very high budget album and it sounds like it and that you can't compare that to something like New Wave Hot Dogs or, you know, like their earlier records. I don't know what the budgets were on those records, but it's kind of like the difference between, you know, say Jim Jarmusch or some other indie filmmaker that starts off making, you know, these low budget films. And then finally, it's like, here's Yola Tango with a Hollywood budget, like because of Nirvana and because of the entire escalation of the independent music realm into like million dollar budgets and you know multi-million selling albums you have you know a label like matt painful is also the first record that they put out on matador and the same thing happened i mean listen to the fall put going back to the fall you know at the same era the fall started putting out records on matador and they're very well produced like high price tag record they sound incredible so painful is kind of like a beneficiary of this increase in the ability to fund this kind of music and it's like big technicolor I mean, it's an incredible album, but it doesn't, it loses a little bit of the scrappiness of the earlier phase. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it, when you talk about the grandeur and the majesty of that record, there's something about the budget of it that I think is part of that. Right. Which is interesting because they were, you know, I think a lot of that was actually self-budgeted at the time. So part of the discovery in that period is like how to make, how to record this kind of music, you know, because they were still there, that, that. I think they made painful. They were still technically signed for to alias. And then, yeah, so it was really, I mean, it was really a leap of confidence for them. I think was a lot of, was a lot is also a lot of what's being heard on that album that they have enough confidence to say that we're not, 
like just a scrappy DIY band that's going to go and crank out like a guitar trio album, you know, in, in a week of just guitar, bass, drums, vocals. Hey, we're done. You know, this is like the first time I think they have enough confidence to take themselves seriously enough to to like really like go through an album process like that and demo everything and like, you know, add those acoustic guitar overdubs and those extra vocals and the atmosphere or whatever, you know. And is that is it that thing like that Jeffrey Jeffrey uh, pointed out that because they have that budget they can go back with confidence and say oh yeah we just need to do this bit again rather than studio times up in two hours uh, we don't want to pay for any more because there was that money there do you think that made them slightly go over stuff a little bit for the better and maybe sometimes uh, lose that scrappy raw edge that um, Jeffrey pointed out from the previous album well I mean they were so the the way that the this you know, getting getting down into like the, the nitty gritty of how they actually did it maybe takes away a little bit of the magic. But, you know, they spent a bunch of months r- working on demos in, in Hoboken and then then went to go work with Roger Mutno. Um, wait, no, I take that. Yeah, that was this is the first Mutno record. Sorry, because they demo the, they, they made they demoed it all with with their friend at home. And then, yeah. And then so they, they knew what they were doing for sure. And then went down to Nashville and, you know, finished it on out. Cool. Um, unless anyone's got anything else to say about painful, I'm going to move us on to how would I pronounce? How do you pronounce it? Electopura, Electopura, Electopura. Um, yeah, yeah. Pura. Yeah. I'm, I'm always Pura? conscious with the know. U sound. Whether like, I could student, be wrong. <laughs> student, whether it's there's an American pronunciation, and I'm just pronouncing it as as an English person. Um, moving on to Electopura, um, which I think I heard for the first time. What day is it today? Friday on Tuesday. And I didn't stop humming Tom Courtney for about three hours to the point that I didn't know what I was humming. There was just this <laughs> thing going around my head. Uh, it was a joy. It, it feels very uh, less planned, less um, structured than, say, painful. There seems to be a bit more of a sort of a fun element to it. But there's some really nice songs. Pablo and Andrea is like a beautiful little track. It seems like a total change again. I, again, I went... I just thought I realized who this band was. <laughs> and then I, I, I was hit in the side with this, this beautiful little this album from, from nowhere. Um, ben, um, you were telling me before we started, there's references on Tom Courtney to Beatles movie Help, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, they sometimes like putting in these playful references. And, and uh, again, Jesse can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this started as kind of Ira doing a song for Georgia, who was, who really liked all of these you know British movies from the 60s. Um, and so, you know, obviously it starts off talking about Julie Christie um, and the song's called Tom Courtney. But but then there's the whole part with Eleanor Braun in it based on her role in the Beatles movie Help. Uh, and uh, uh, see her in the arms of Paul saying, I can say no more, you know, a line from that movie. Um, and uh, so just just in those little asides like that, I, I mean, Tom Courtney, yeah, fantastic song, incredibly catchy, incredibly tuneful, but they're layering all these wonderful things in that you can discover as you dig deeper into it. And so that's a song that I can hear you know, so many times and get something new out of it, out of it every time. Yola Tingle themselves have recorded it in different styles. There's a beautiful uh, acoustic version with Georgia on lead vocals that uh, that they also recorded. So one of these songs that they continue to come back to, it's probably one uh, song that they played, you know, among the most played songs of theirs in their, in their songbook, but they always sort of find new things to do with it. Tom, which is great. Tom Courtney's an actor, right? My brain and is telling me. I'm on about to mention that he's from Hull. 
Oh. Ah. Oh. <laughs> what thing, things you must realize if you're new to the pod. Nick's from Hull, and apparently, if someone's from Hull, he's on a bound to mention that. <laughs> it only happens twice. Yeah, Tom Courtney is an actor who is yeah. from Hull well, in the north of England. Lana, Billy Liar, that kind of thing. British miserableism yes. from the 60s. Great stuff. <laughs> um, I'll so, have to remember that next time I play the Adelphi. I'll have to pull out the oh, Adelphi. Adelphi cover. Don't, don't get me started on that place. I love that place. <laughs> that's where I first started going to gigs. I don't know if Yola Tango ever played there. I wonder. Probably. Um, if you're listening anyway. at home, you can use Google and find this out. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah. So other people's thoughts on the Electro Pure? I mean, I thought it was it was a lovely change, although it was confusing for me. Um, like I said, I thought I knew where the band was going. Uh, Jeffrey, um, after painful and the big the big soundscapes, we still have that a little bit, but this was a change of mood, right? Uh, yeah, my favorite Yola Tango record. Uh, perfect record in my book, um, devastating masterpiece of an album, perfect track order, um, just a, a masterpiece album. It, it you, um, you almost, where can you go from building up album by album? And then you hit the point where you make, may I sing with me? And then you make painful and then you make electro pura. It's kind of like they've reached the top of the mountain at this point, And it's just, you know, so multifaceted, so great in every element of it. And just, the flow of the tracks, one to the next, the different kinds of approaches to songs, the pro- the approaches within the songs, the way that, um, you know, a flying lesson builds up to that really intense ending, that, the way that they rock on this album, the com- their confidence as a rock band, and the way that even, like, the, ba- you know, like, Ballad of Red Buckets, the psychedelic, intense atmosphere that they build up, the weird guitar sounds, um, this, yeah, Electro Pura, is uh is just yola tango perfection i mean when i think of yola tango basically that's the album that i judge all of their other work by like that is the yola tango album in in my opinion i I lost track of what year what year are we at now this is 1995 and as jeffrey was saying um since i guess we both kind of discovered them as a live act uh, around that same time when they were doing songs from this uh from this album plus you know painful um, they just sounded so good. I mean, uh, you know, my first Yolotenko concert was New Year's Eve, 1996 at Maxwell. Oh, wow. And I was, a uh, I was a moderate fan up to that point, but just hearing them do those Alexia Pura songs uh, were, was just like cemented them as, you know, this is, this is my new favorite band. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to see them as often as possible. Yeah. I mean, in, in a, in a <laughs> lot of ways, this is kind of like almost the peak of them as just what you think of as like the indie rock guitar trio of, you know, Ira playing guitar, James playing bass, Georgia playing drums. It's straight ahead. It's amazing. It's kind of working with those tools to like the the fullest extent. Like I think of, you know, like the like when I think of live Yola Tango, like, you know, fl- uh, Flying Lesson uh, is pretty much like the first song that I think of. That's kind of to me just like the Yola Tango jam. Um, and yeah, this, it, it just encapsulates like the, the quintessential live Biola Tango in an out al- in album form. And then I, th- and to That's me, right. it's kind of almost like an, an end of a period in that way. Cause to me, when you start, when you, I can hear the heart beating one to me, that's when the, the, the music starts to be like fuller spectrum with all, you know, just lots of different approaches, lots more atmosphere and a lot of songs that, 
you know, I feel like with Electropure, I can I can kind of imagine how songs were written. They 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 sound like a guitar trio, um, most to me a lot of the time, except for like Pablo and Andrea. Like how I, God, that's an amazing song. Um, but uh, I feel like when you get to I can hear the heart beating this one, like a lot to me, a lot of the songs feel like they kind of like grew out of like not just somebody sitting there strumming a guitar. That's kind of when it really starts to feel like it came out of a group mind and kind of out of this collaborative thing, you know? Uh, And taking up on that point, obviously, while I've been preparing for this pod and and listening to the albums, I've gone back and I've I've then gone and read reviews and articles and interviews and trying to see what's happening. Um, The next album, I Can Hear the Heartbeat as one, is that seems to be, there seems to be a line. There's pre and there's post. And going to what you were saying about how like it, they, they don't they maybe no longer sound like the band that just sat and wrote everything on the guitar. Everything else is coming in and more all these new facets and, and threads uh, going back to what you said earlier. Um, it seems to be when they changed, maybe not as a band, but people's perceptions of them. I, t- I mean, to me... Uh, to me, that's the beginning of Maturiola Tango. That I can hear the heartbeat in this one. To me, that's when they become. To me, that's when they become the band that they are now, for like fully, fully formed, kind of willing to try anything, really improv friendly. That was an album that where they really tried. Where I think a lot of stuff got born in the studio, where they really had the confidence, like you know, like not have everything planned out to just kind of you know start messing around, and then like oh you know let's add vocals to this jam that we had and you know build build songs like that so it their, their voice to me their voice changes and it does become less of ira's band and more of a i mean it was always collaborative you know but it becomes it, to me it becomes less of like oh there's the guitar player in a rhythm section and more of like a total picture that 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 i'm hearing um, um jeffrey said earlier on his ocd was killing him when he realized that song the songs were not in the order that he thought they had been in. Um, what tends to kill me when I listen to music is I've got one of those brains that I can hear another song in everything I, I hear. I'm like, oh, there's a bit of the bangle now. Oh, there's a little bit of um, Bobby McFerrin in this song. I can I can hear other songs in songs. Getting to about this stage of Yoda Tango was driving me insane. I could hear everybody else and nobody else. They sounded like nobody no other band I've, I've listened to, yet I was hearing bits of Dinosaur Jr., Bella Sebastian, Velvet Underground. I, I could keep hearing these other bands in them, but then when I looked at it as a whole, they didn't sound like these other bands. It was totally driving me crazy. But this was an album that the first, when I listened to it for the first time, I went, oh yeah, this is a, this is a new band now. They've got to a different stage and they're moving into something. Um, ben, um, this was what, 98, 97? This was 97, yeah. And it's nice that we, we end the first uh, installment here because just seeing their progression from those early albums and, you know, as, as Jesse's saying, they've matured. This is, and this is the sound of Yola Tango as we know them. It's got some of their most famous songs. I mean, um, Sugar Cube, Autumn Sweater. Um, hearing James take lead vocals on Stockholm Syndrome is an incredible moment, uh, a real kind of watershed moment for the band, I would say. Um, and uh, yeah, they're they're just firing on all cylinders, and they can they can do the noisy stuff, they can do the quiet stuff, they can even throw in some bossa nova, and somehow that's okay. Um, they they can do it all, and um, it also seemed to me an album that um, uh, I'd, I'd be interested to hear what Jeffrey has to say, but it strikes me as an album that other musicians really gravitated to at the time. 
um, even in our Facebook group that's doing the um, immersion on Blur right now, you know, um, uh, I think uh, Graham Coxon was, you know, inspired by Ira's guitar solo in Stockholm Syndrome uh, to do something. And it, like whenever I hear the Wilco song, Heavy Metal Drummer, I'm thinking he's just kind of doing, um, he's just doing Autumn Sweater in that, isn't he? So it seems like, you know, the Yola Tango sound just became really popular as, you know, a band that was always, they were all kind of, always kind of the musicians, musicians, I guess. Um, but this is where it's, it's just sort of like they, they really just, they just hit on all cylinders in such a way that nobody could ignore them. And, and their fellow musicians really seem to pick up on that. Um, well, uh, this to me, this is where it all starts to go wrong. Um, <laughs> where I, I have this theory that um, every band that does a double album is because they realize that they cannot improve in quality, so they get they try to confuse their audience by throwing quantity at them as a way of confusing the issue, and it usually means the death knell. It usually is a sign that it's the end. I mean, if you look at Electric Ladyland, you look at the White Album, you look at. Uh, Blonde on Blonde, you look at, um, you know, there's, there's a whole, you, you look at uh, Daydream Daydream Nation, You a, a band approaches a certain pinnacle, and then they realize we're not going to be able to actually make better quality than what we, we've built up to the point where we can't improve our quality. The only last little trick card we can pull out here before we start to tumble down is quantity. While we're still at t- peak quality, let's do a double album just so that we still have a little trick to impress people with quantity. But that's your first sign that they couldn't make a record better than Electropura. <laughs> the only thing that they could do was like, let's have a sprawling record so that nobody really notices that we're not making a better record than Electropura. That's fine. It's still a <laughs> devastatingly good record. And I remember clearly, uh, I think it was April 97 when I saw them at the Knitting Factory and they were playing Autumn Sweater, and everybody in the audience was hearing it live for the first time. And it was like, oh my God, their next record is going to be... Because this is like, they're touring. Electropure is the most recent release. I Can Hear the Heart is still a few months away from being released, but we're hearing these songs live for the first time, and they're just devastatingly awesome. They're like even more... You're like, this band was the greatest band in the world, and now they're like even better. But then when the album finally came out, it was a little bit of a letdown. It was okay. First, you put it on. You have the little overture, and then there's Moby Octopad, and you're like, "This is amazing. This is totally different. Totally mind blowing. What is this? I love it to death." Right. But by the time you're done with this record, it has a number of mushy, gushy spots. You know, you can always play that game. Like, well, how would you make the White Album into a single? What songs would you drop? And what you know, how would you make London Calling into a single album? You know, I'm not going to play that game with this record, but I will say that there's. Pound for pound, the amount of this record that I think is awesome versus the amount that's merely like whatever, like what, you know, Little Honda, it's like, eh, you know, it's okay. Even Sugar Sugar Cube is sort of like, we need to write a perfect indie rock anthem. Go. But it's sort of like, it just seems a little contrived to me. It's like, here is us making our hit song. But that doesn't mean that it's actually a hit. It's like, here's us acting like we're making a hit. You know, I like it. I, I mean, I love this record. Um, Yellow Tango is one of my favorite bands, and I'll, you know, just within them being the greatest band of all time, I'm going to have my little criticisms here and there and my little annoyance criticisms. Okay. And, I, yeah, I think this album also follows a trend that a lot of great bands were – a lot a pattern that a lot of bands were falling into in this time. 97, 98, it's the end of Stereolab as a rock band. 
It's the end of um, Acetone, another indie rock band of that era. I really love their early stuff. Everybody starts getting jazzy and loungy. Loungy and jazzy became like the thing. You listen to every Stereolab album up to 1997, and they are a slamming, can, Velvet Underground, drone, you know, noisy, Yola Tango vibe. And then you get 97 and after, and everybody wants to just do loungy stuff with different time signatures and jazzy. And I'm like, I like rock and roll, man. Keep playing rock and roll. <laughs> Jesse, Jesse, sorry, just before we come to you, I just want to point out to the regular listeners that um, in the last episode, uh, I received looks of stunned dis- disbelief with my opinions on David Bowie's Black Star. Those looks of disbelief were nothing compared to the look on your face when Jeffrey expressed his opinion on this record. <laughs> Jesse, your right of response, please. <laughs> Well, sure, man. Um, You know, I love the sprawl of this record. I love the atmospherics. You know, this is, you know, this is the period that I was falling in love with the band. And the thing that actually made me fall in love with the band, and I love the rock songs. I love everything that I, you know, went back and discovered. But the specific moment that I fell in love with the other thing, I was hearing Green Arrow for the first time uh, in in the middle middle of in the middle of a desert <laughs> i was driving cross country with a friend of mine and he he i'm not going to retell the whole story but just this 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 sense of utter space that they were able to create um with that song but just in general that is so far beyond rock band to me and i guess that was and i love them as a rock band but kind of the place that i came at them from was like here's this band that's like you know, they do all of these different things and it, it you know, I, I, I hate, I don't like calling them like a psychedelic band cause that's not what they are, but there's such a kaleidoscopic thing about the, the, just the, the, the breath that they have. And to me that this period is kind of when that begins where there's, you know, and it's, and I, I guess I, I like, you know, and I'm not, uh, yeah, I like the sprawl, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> and I know uh, it was a yeah. weird one for me because, this was the first time I heard anything by them on the radio, really. Uh, I spent a couple of years, late 90s, living in California, uh, working in a video shop, and Little Honda was constantly on um, Santa Barbara, Montecito, Modern Rock, whatever the, the four letters are that you have in uh, American radio stations. And I didn't know who it was. I just That was a song that came with me. And then several years later, I realized who it was. I went, oh, that's Yola Tango. Oh, that's what Yola Tango sound like. And then I rediscovered it this week in the middle of this double jazz album. Um, I went, oh, this seems out of place. Yeah, it always, a little bit. it always struck me as out of place too. And they did release it. The little Honda EP came out um, and got some college radio play um, in 98, right? When you were uh, living out yep. there in California. Um, but yeah, that, that one... That one is fine. I, I would probably say it's my least favorite song on uh, on an album that's otherwise, for my money, pretty impactful. But an amazing live jam, <laughs> an like that's you know that's oh, that's, the, that's that's where they yeah, they, yeah. they they pull the noise floor out and just just go. <laughs> yeah, um, I think this is this is probably a perfect point to wrap up the first part. Um, we've had some shocking revelations <laughs> that that some people's favorite album is a bit baggy <laughs> in parts. Um, <laughs> but I think we've covered things rather nicely, and we've, we're leaving. We're stopping the first part at a good point. Uh, Yoda Tango have developed into Yoda Tango have developed into something, and where they go from here is going to be interesting as we go into the noughties 
uh, and beyond. Um, we will see everybody back for the the, 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 the next episode, I guess. Um, ben, thank you very much for all your input and all your work. Uh, Jeffrey, great to have you on the first one. See you next time. Jesse, uh, the look <laughs> on your face when, when that was revealed will be stuck in my head for weeks. And Nick, um, uh, see you all next time. And you, listener, I hope you're still with us. Uh, We've got some great stuff coming up in the next episode. And see you then. Bye. That was really something. And we're only halfway. Thank you once again to our curator, the linguist and language commentator, Ben Zimmer, and our two extraordinary guests, Jesse Jarnow, author of Big Day Coming, Yola Tengo and the Rise of Indie Rock, I can assure you it's well worth a read, and Jeffrey Lewis, singer, songwriter and comic book artist, who has so many great records, we'll probably do a featured episode on him one day. Check him out if you don't know his work. Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for the theme music and my convivial co-host Ewan. I'm Nick Hilditch, with nothing to say, and you in your autumn sweater. <laughs>